I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Today's episode of Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Nomadica, a company founded by Michelin starred sommelier Kristen Olszewski, with the goal of bringing to you a range of high-quality, sustainably farmed, low-sulfur wines made without chemical manipulation. I hate chemical manipulation, so this is great. Nomadica was born to help solve the issue of complexity within the wine industry and to offer millennials and Gen Z consumers a modern wine brand that's serious enough for a glass, but vivacious enough to be sipped out of a can. And not to worry, shipping is free. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive a discount of 20% off their order by using the code SHUTUPEVAN at checkout. That's SHUTUPEVAN, one word, at checkout. Go to explorenomatica.com to check out their variety of offerings. That's explorenomatica.com. Happy sipping. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Are they going to cut the body open? Oh, my God. Would you just stop talking? Just shut your mouth. Please. What am I doing? How can you act like that? Am I supposed to be changing my clothes a lot? Is that the helpful thing to do? Guys. The way you behave. Nobody will tell me. Because it's not okay for you to be asking these things. But I don't understand. I don't understand how this all happens. How we go through this. I mean, I knew her and then she's, there's just a body. And I don't understand why she just can't get back in it and not be dead anymore. It's stupid. It's mortal and stupid. And, and Xander's crying and not talking. And, and I was having fruit punch. And I thought, well, Joyce will never have any more fruit punch ever. And she'll never have eggs or yawn or brush her hair. Not ever. And no one will explain to me why. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz. And you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And today it's going to be just me. Um because I want to tell you all about something and 
I think maybe it will help to to speak about it. I don't know. I don't really, I don't know much about grief or how it works. So I'm working through it. Um, but I've learned very quickly that a lot of people know about grief, whether from past experiences or are currently grieving. And I don't know, I keep thinking about that sort of like trite quote of like, you never know what people are going through. Um, but like, it's true. It really is. Um, and it's funny because I've spent so much of the last year and a half dealing with this or perhaps not dealing with this that it could really go either way when I think about it um quietly and 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 now that there's been some finality to it um I'm looking back and and thinking well what if I talked about it so I'm gonna try talking about it here and we'll see if that's productive um Yeah, I had hoped that today's cold open would be us discussing the death of Barbara Walters, which I I do plan to do because that's a death that's very important to me. But, you know, I need to talk. uh, That that can't happen today. That will happen when when it can, hopefully next episode. Um, But I keep thinking of this scene. I keep thinking of uh, this scene that that you just heard. I keep thinking of Diane Keaton in the final scene in The Family Stone. That's you and me, kid. You and me. I keep thinking of Miranda in season one, episode two of And Just Like That. Death sucks, she tells Steve as they prepare to attend Big's funeral. My dad was nothing like Big or Diane Keaton or Buffy's mom, Joyce. My dad was incredibly singular in ways that I did not appreciate at all until just days ago. Um, There's a lot that is occurring to me. Um, Things I'm realizing, digesting, comprehending, ETC, in the days since. And oh yeah, (laughs) Uh, on Wednesday morning, my dad died at West Penn Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He died of complications from what is called graft-versus-host disease, which was brought on um, after he had a transplant 11 months ago um, because he had uh, blood cancer. Um, And it's not uncommon. It's that someone with graft-versus-host disease dies. Um, But despite all that, it... (laughs) That doesn't make it feel any better. Um, On December 23rd, that was the last time I spoke on the phone with my dad. We chatted for 15 minutes. Um, He seemed perfectly himself. Um, It was actually like the most him he'd sounded in months. Um, I was so heartened by that call. And in true my dad fashion, you know, he was asking about this podcast and uh and everything going on in my life my dad was very fed in these last months by by you know wanting to be connected to the world that was going on i think that um i think you know many parents are proud of their kids but i think my dad especially so it's like this one thing i keep hearing from from so many people that I don't even know, which was like how much my dad would speak about us to them. Um, 
And then on December 26th, he was admitted to the hospital. Um, But he had kind of been in and out of the hospital, not regularly, but regularly enough that it didn't worry me initially. And then on December 30th, he was admitted to the ICU. Um, And I felt a little better at the time in thinking that at the ICU he'll receive 24-hour care. Because, you know, for a long time, when, when you're not in it, I'm in New York, he's in Pittsburgh, I kept thinking, you know, is there some issue with the hospital, right? It's like, in my mind, you have you, you as a human being, you try to rationalize things, or rather I do. And so in my mind, I was like, he's just not getting the right care. So I thought with the ICU, 24-hour care, because there were just so many instances when I would ask my mom, questions about things and she'd be like we don't know and I was like well but how do they not know right how do they not know and I thought well this is going to be a good step because we'll have people on hand that will be able to there will be no more ignoring things and in retrospect maybe they were never ignoring things I don't know but on um, December 4th with my mom's hand caressing his cheek telling him to go to sleep they removed his ventilator and the million other tubes and bandages that were attached to him. And he, you know, he passed on. And I don't recommend watching your parent die, um, but the options are grim, whether you look away or not. So we agreed as a family, me, uh, my mom, and both of my brothers, to stay in the room and to be there with him. Um... They told us he would make some odd noises um, as he took his final breaths. What they what they did is they they had us all go out of the room and removed all of everything that was you know hooked into him. I turned all of the machines off, um, and they had, they had told us they were like you know he's going to be struggling to breathe, and I don't want to get into like the details of why, but yeah, so noises come come out as a result of of all of that, and and they did. Um, and we laughed, my mother, my brothers and I, um, as we stood around his near lifeless body, um, in shock and in mourning. Um, it was a good laugh. It was a necessary laugh. Um, I think he too would have found it funny. Was it sudden? Buffy asks Tara as they sit in the hospital in the moments after Buffy's mother's death. No, Tara says, then thinks. Yes, she says, pausing again. It's always sudden. And that's how I feel about this. You know, we knew the possibilities, but seeing is believing. And I think that I'd done a good job of not seeing. The thing I don't know about yet is like how consciously I was not, I was like, if I was choosing not to see subconsciously, or if I just didn't, I, I don't really know yet. I think that like, I'm so in it right now, but then I have like moments where I like lift out of it a little bit and I can see things with, I think, more objectivity, but I just don't know. And I also, I, you know, with all of the all of the reading I've been doing, it's like I'm just trying to grant myself grace in things um, and trying not to be filled with regret. You know, it's like, you know, could I have gotten there sooner or like, could I have gone home to visit more these last couple of months or called more or been a better son? All of these things flashing before me. And it's like, I just, 
I'm not going to find solace in that. So I don't know. I don't know how, how, I don't know about the purpose of going down those roads just yet, if at all. Um, And I think there's some denial on my part, but I also think that my mom did a good job of hiding just how bad things got. And couple that with my lack of sympathy, um, something I am committed to working on. And perhaps you could understand the yes answer to the was it sudden question. Um, My friend Shane, shout out to Shane, sent me this message earlier this week. He had met my dad in November at our engagement party, our being Billy and I's. And and Shane said, I knew something was off because you mentioned it, but I didn't realize it was as bad as it was. But I'm so happy he was here to send you both off to the wedding. I never know how my friends feel about their dads because we never talk about them. But I always got the sense that your dad was paramount. And I've just been thinking about this, we don't talk about our dad's sentence of Shane's. And it really is so true. Um, I don't talk about my dad. I don't know much about my friend's dads. Um, So if you'll allow me, um, I'd like to pull together some of what I know about my dad. My dad and I spent... 31 out of our 33 years together, not like two ships passing in the night, but as two ships in entirely different bodies of water. But there's some nuance that I'm more clear on deciphering because, you know, in the question of did you have a good relationship or a bad relationship with your dad, it's funny, neither really rings true to me so much as relationships especially family or, or ones that you're ones that you're tied to, they're a long game. And so I think that we spent, it took us a long time um, to see and understand one another. I think it will take me, I think I will continue to see and understand him differently um, over time. But I'm grateful of like our journey together. It was never a lack of acceptance with my dad, not ever. It was always a lack of understanding. And that's something that it gives me, like, it makes me feel good when I think back on it because I hear, I've read, I hear a lot of stories about gay people, LGBTQ plus people and their parents, specifically their dads and this sort of like, I mean, at its worst, in the worst instances, disowning them, but also just in general, not accepting them. And I, I, in retrospect too, again, things you realize the older you get perhaps, but it's like, um, I never was not accepted. He never didn't accept me. He never made me feel bad for being who I was. I think it just was confusing for him often, who I was, how I navigated the world. Um, my two older brothers, they were more status quo, um, And then I came along and I just, I rejected so much of the stasis. I wanted to have co-ed sleepovers with my theater friends in my teens. He eventually allowed it. I wanted to go to a a performing arts high school in downtown Pittsburgh instead of the high school that was in walking distance of our house. And this meant us sort of turning over my grandma's, uh, the deed on her property over to us because we needed to have a residence in Pittsburgh proper in order for me to go there. My dad handled all of that, no questions asked. Um, Yeah, 
he allowed it. He not only allowed it, he drove me to the trolley every morning um, because I had to commute uh, downtown to go to high school. And uh, <laughs> it's like I have, I have so many memories of running late and him shouting at me up the stairs to hurry my ass up. And when I wanted to go to one of the most expensive universities in the country, my dad took out loans to make sure my dreams could be my reality. I actually remember when he came to move me in, we got into this huge fight. And they left, when they left New York, we like left on very, very bad terms. Um, but again, it's like, that's, that was us. I can't rewrite history, you know? Like, you know? But I guess I do remember that fight. I didn't love that one. Um... And he did so much of this, so much of these going out of his way for me or just making sure that he would, essentially it's like I had this, he like would clear the path for my runway, you know? And he didn't do it wanting a thank you, needing a thank you. He certainly didn't get one for me. And I could be, perhaps can be, very entitled. I'll work on that too, Dad, I promise. But, um, but he still did these things. Because one thing I'm learning about my dad is that it really made my dad feel good to make others feel good. Now, he was not perfect. He was not perfect. He had a really, really bad temper. And I feel like I could get him really riled up. I knew how to work him up, and I wasn't afraid to push the button and push it again. And I feel like there are so many instances in my past where I'd force my mom into the equation. I would triangulate our relationship which years of therapy has taught me is not good. Um, he would pout. He would really, really pout. There was one weekend years ago that Billy and I came into town and he, my dad and I got into some big fight at the dinner table. I don't even know what it was about. That's the thing. I have no memory of the specifics of any of our fights, just that they happened, which is why I think I'm able to really not hold any grudge against those 31 years. I, I truly don't because it's just like, it never was any, we never fought about anything significant. You know what I mean? So there's just no resentment or like residual anger. And I wish that upon so many people. And I don't mean to sound like I'm so enlightened, but I, the, one of the things that gives me some solace in all of this is just knowing the fact that like, I don't, we, I feel like we, we worked so hard in our relationship, both of us, and got it to this better place. Um, but I do remember that fight that weekend. And he spent the rest of the weekend up in his room. He would even, he would eat his meals up there all weekend um, and didn't even say goodbye to us when we left. He could be that stubborn. He really, really was. I hope he'll work on that in heaven or wherever he goes. Because it's like, that was one of his less becoming traits. And I used to have these visions. This is going to sound very morbid, but I mean, death is morbid. And it was like, I was, I think I was probably in my late teens and I would have these visions of my dad's funeral. Um, not because I wanted him dead, uh, but only because I would think about the fact that if, you know, if and when my dad were to have a funeral, I was, I, I wouldn't want to get up to speak because I would have nothing to say. And I would either stand there in silence or I would lie. And I remember, I, I just didn't know which one I would choose. I wondered whether it was better to lie or to stand in silence. And I would go back and forth between the two and cut to now, half of my lifetime later. And I won't lie, nor will I be silent. Um, I don't know what I'll say just yet um, when I speak at his celebration of life this weekend. Um, but I will speak from my heart. 
a heart that is broken, a heart that is grieving a man that I loved and would give anything to bring back, but that's not possible. And I'm not delving into the denial stage of grief. I'm reading about grief and all of these stages and I'm not, not in denial. Like I said, I don't know a ton about grief. You know, I've, I've, I've lost grandparents and a few people close to me, but nothing like this. And I've heard that we're supposed to lean into grief, which is funny because I'm fully prepared to lean in. Like it never occurred to me that there was an option otherwise. Like I'm, I'm leaning in. I think I'll be just fine at leaning in. It's been about a year of trips back and forth to Pittsburgh to see my dad in various states, sometimes in the hospital, other times at home when he could barely stand up without assistance. Um, And in a few instances, he seemed perfectly normal. I have this memory of like, I think it was the last time that I was in Pittsburgh when he wasn't in the hospital, or perhaps it was two times ago. And he was just kind of like, this was after a bad spell. And he really, he was just kind of relearning how to walk. And he was like so determined to go with me to get a coffee. And the coffee shop is like two blocks from my parents' apartment. But we laughed, and I was, we laughed, and he had his cane, or even maybe his walker even at this point. But I knew I was like, and I didn't bring my phone with me for some reason. I just got really scared that he was going to fall and that I wasn't going to be able to call 911. But he was just so determined. And his stubbornness made it such where I just was like, he's not going to not go to the coffee shop. But we finally got about halfway there and I convinced him to sit and wait. And I don't know. I have, there's, this is not, there's no end to this story, but I just remember that walk. I, that's the thing right now is like, I have a lot of these memories of like, moments, not deeply profound moments, just some of those moments when it was just he and I together and they just, they come back to you and you're like, what does this mean? Is there some something to, to discern from this moment? And it's like, no, it's just your memory holding on to what it can, you know? So I'd make these trips back and forth. And then this time in December, my mom had been begging us to come home. This is when he went into the hospital the last time. And so my brothers and I got in a call. We worked it out so that we'd stagger our going home to cover as much of a span of time as possible. You know, we didn't want my mom to be home alone. um, So we sort of worked it out that like we would each come home in fits and starts. You know, we all have our lives here. um, Our significant others. My oldest brother has kids. He lives across the country. So it just was like we needed, there was just logistics. I think a lot of people, this will resonate for some people, which is like the logistics of death is something that is like very fascinating just because like there are things that have to happen, right? You have to work out things like schedule. Um, You have to figure out the funeral arrangements and where the body is going and if the body is going to be cremated and you have to figure out the catering for the wedding. And there's just all kinds of things that, are overwhelming. I I found them kind of nice to have tasks to do, but like even just, you know, I keep thinking about like immediately after, so he, um, he was no longer breathing, but there was a period when his heart was still kind of beating a little bit. They were not able to 
call the deaf. And my family and I were just standing there and sitting, you know, in the room around his body. And I just was like, this is like, what do we do? And then they finally came in and they told us, you know, that he was dead. And it was like, how long do we stay in here? You know? And, and when we leave, it's like that, I think this is one of the saddest parts, but it's just like, you don't see him again, you know? You, yeah. It's all, it's, it's, it's a lot. I will say it's like, I remember when I got there the first time, he squeezed my hand a few times and I know he knew who I was. I just, I don't know, I just know. There was this moment of where I saw the cognition and he even said my name at one point. I mean, he knew I was there. So my brothers and I worked out this schedule to go home. And then when he got to the, when my mom called and he was in the ICU, it just became clear that we needed to all go there to be together. Like we, it was just clear we all need to rush home right now. Perhaps my mom knew the inevitable, though you can't really ever knew. But in my mind, I was so convinced that like he's where he needs to be now and this 24-hour care will get him back to to where he was. So I toasted to the New Year at midnight in New York. I woke up on New Year's Day, got a car first thing, drove six hours through New Jersey, across Pennsylvania to the hospital. And when I got there, he was barely conscious. But like I said, he could squeeze my hand. It felt like he was looking through me, not at me. But he seemed stable. I mean, he didn't look good, but he seemed stable. And there were signs of improvement over the two days that I was home that gave me enough hope that I could go back to New York for a few days and come back on Sunday. Because again, we wanted to stagger things. So if I left on Sunday, my one brother would stay home and then he would leave on Saturday and I would be back on Sunday so my mom would never have to be alone. So on Tuesday morning, I came back to the hospital. Again, things seem stable, trending up. Um, so I said goodbye. And I will say, actually, I do want to share this briefly. I had planned, because I wanted to get back to New York, I was going to wake up um, and just head straight. I woke, you know, say goodbye to my, my brothers and my mom and head straight back. And my oldest brother, Jordan, was like, Evan, you should come to the hospital before you go. And I was like, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I regress to like my younger self when I'm at home, especially around my full family. And I just snapped at Jordan and I was like, you can't tell me what to do. Like I, I've been here just like you. I need to get back. I have a long drive ahead of me. Like, how dare you tell me? Like I was just at the hospital last night. I called this morning. Everything seems fine. Like, why would I go? Blah, 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 blah. blah. Anyway, cut to, we get to the, the garage. I'm saying goodbye to my, to them. And then I was just like, you know what? I'll come to the hospital. And I came to the hospital. Anyway, all this to say, um, I, unlike my dad, um, am not stubborn. And I am glad in that moment. I don't like the tone with which Jordan spoke to me, but I understand that the, I'm like all about, I'm on this journey right now of like um, trying to understand like the root emotion of people's actions when they do things. And it's like the root of what Jordan was saying was like, give yourself the opportunity to say goodbye to dad just in case you leave and something happens. And so I'm grateful that he said what he said. And I'm grateful that I stopped by on Tuesday morning. Thankfully, that was not the last time I would see him alive. But I understand now that like, 
yeah, you, it was better that I, that I go in the room and, and get that hand squeeze. Um, I had a weird feeling the moment I hit the road, it started pouring, pouring like, like pouring, like I've never driven through before. I was hydroplaning at times and I feel like the, the rental car's windshield wipers, they couldn't keep up with the strength of the rainfall. Like there were times I was just like, I, I, I cannot keep driving through this, but then there weren't, there were times that there weren't the area that you could pull off on the side. It was just, the road was so, the highway was so narrow. We all had our emergency lights on as we're driving. I'm going probably like 30 miles an hour on the highway. It was just nuts. And I just had this weird feeling that was like growing in me the further, further away I would get that was like, why did you leave? You didn't have to leave. I wasn't coming back to anything in particular. Sure, I had things, events and everything lined up in New York, but nothing that like I had to get back for. But I rationalized it by being like, again, we have to stagger this. This is going to be a long game for my dad. This is what needs to be done. But like this pit in my stomach, ugh, it just, yeah, it was there the whole time. I got back around sunset and I realized then that like my whole family was in New was excuse me, was in Pittsburgh. I was back in New York and I was gonna have to rely on them, like rely on phone calls and whatnot, to get updates. And it was like I realized that I had made a bad decision. So I texted Coolidge uh, to inform her of what was going on. Um, we've always had a relationship in which we talk a lot about death. And um, we've discussed the loss of a parent before, and I just had a feeling that she would be the right person to talk to. And before I went to bed on Tuesday, I read the last sentence of her text, and it said, they really need us in the end. And I was awoken to a call from my brother saying he, he, my dad, had gone unresponsive. And I'm like, fuck. Fuck that he gone unresponsive, and fuck that I'm not there. So I... I was like, I just need to get there. And I'm going through my head, okay, what can I do? I could go rent a car right now. I could call Billy's parents and hit the road. But I just was like, I cannot handle six plus hours on the road not knowing what's going to go on, if he would go on. So anyway, I book a flight, the first flight out. I don't even brush my teeth. I, thank God, my 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 suitcase hadn't even been unpacked because I had just gotten home that night, the night before. Rush to the airport, catch a flight, Sitting on that tarmac, like, knowing what I was going home to, because at that point, it's like, it was different because I was going home. I knew he was dying. Like, he, when I left on went on, t- on Wednesday morning, it's like, you're going home to be there as your dad dies, um, which took a long time to, to set in. I mean, I don't think it is. I don't think it has set in. Um, and although I'm like, I'm so mad at myself still, I'm trying to like give myself grace on this, but like, I'm so mad at myself for leaving on Tuesday. I am so grateful, so grateful, so grateful that I was able to get back on Wednesday in time. I, you know, got back to the hospital, was able to be there the five of us, my family, together in a room for the last time. I've heard from so many people who knew my dad, who tell me stories or anecdotes or memories of my dad, of a person I didn't know. Not because he concealed it, but because he had a whole life that wasn't just being my dad. 
I'm learning about how much he gave to others so selflessly. I'm learning about his courage and never once complaining about the mess he was put through with this cancer bullshit. And I am looking back at countless pictures and seeing not him smiling at the camera, but constantly with his head turned, smiling at my mother. My poor mother. I don't know how she will go on. Not because she's not strong. She is incredibly strong. And I know she will, but it just feels so overwhelmingly sad for all of us. And I'm scared for Sunday when all of us leave. I'd rather that's the hardest part, you know, when when the old house is quiet. Because right now there's all of the, the chaos of the planning and friends and family coming into town and reaching out and it'll get quiet. It'll get quiet and that'll be hard. But I know that this year and a half or two years, I mean, the timeline's all jumbled. I know it's prepared her in ways, but then it's like, you can never be prepared. It's this and that. So that is where I'm at. I miss him. He was a good man, my dad. I wish that I'd realized that years sooner, but I'm grateful that it happened when it did too. Rest easy, Dad. The pain is gone, Dad. In my heart forever, Dad. Love, F. So... So without, oh gosh, so without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our interview with the fabulous and enthusiastic and life-affirming Sabrina Impacciatore. Shut up, Evan. We will be right back with Sabrina Impacciatore after a word from our sponsor. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Jeans Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Jeans deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. And we're back. I am so happy. I'm so excited you're here. This is a huge moment for fans of this podcast, for us, and for all the White Lotus Hive around the world. Now, Sabrina, I want to start by asking you, this is a huge moment you find yourself in right now. Not only are you a part of this show that is the most popular thing out there right now, but you yourself, you and your character Valentina are like one of the most beloved entities within that already popular thing. How are you feeling about the fan response to you and your character? I am shocked, 
like really everything is so huge and me I'm so small so I have to deal with something so big I mean this is overwhelming and, and at the same time it's very moving it's very touching but like my publicist from Italy the other day she called me she was crying like Sabrina you don't understand what's happening like everybody's calling us um, I are there are people writing me from all over the world. I always think that acting is a gift of love. I always think I want to give something. I don't want to receive. So now to receive all this love, it's really, it's the highest joy. You know, Ivan. See, I I could I could die tonight as a happy person. Well, I hope I don't. <laughs> We hope you don't either. I'm curious, Sabrina, what your understanding was of Mike White's work before you landed the role of Valentina in The White Lotus season two. How familiar were you with Mike White? Actually, I was not familiar with Mike White. And when I got the call for to uh, for the self-tape, I even said at first, to my agent that I couldn't do the self-tape because I was too busy with another movie. And then when I saw the White Lotus one, I saw it in, an, in a night. I was eating the show, really. Like, I couldn't believe how brilliant it was. I googled his name after watching his things. I looked at his, at his face, at his picture of, of his face. And I thought, I want this person in my life because this person has an innocence. I see that she has, he has an innocence in his glance because he's a child inside, but he's a genius. He's a lifetime meeting for me, literally. Not only because White Lotus is changing my life, but also because this journey with him was uh, an artistic journey with such a high quality of work. What I felt, if I can make this kind of parallel, because this is what, what happened to me. You know, when, when, you, when you make love with someone and you really arrive to the highest point of enjoyment, like it's, a, it's the orgasm of, of of acting that I felt with him. And uh, I, I adore him. Mm -mm. I get that impression. Now, <laughs> one thing I think so many of us love about this show was the weekly rollout. It amplified our desire to see the show because there was this withholding, right? We had these seven days between each episode where we were able to chat with our friends about it, prognosticate on what was going to happen. I don't think this show would have landed as successfully as it had had it all dropped at once. What are your thoughts on that? I agree so much that you can't even imagine. I don't want to speak with my friends that didn't didn't enjoy this journey because I have some friends that say, no, Sabrina, I can't wait for one week. So I'm going to wait for all the series going on here and then I will watch it all together in a row. I don't like these people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like these people because it's like they don't want to be part of this journey. 
like the whole world was in this resort with us. The feeling is that everybody went on this crazy holiday. It's so beautiful. Don't we feel so lonely? Don't we need to communicate with other people? I mean, we are on Facebook, Instagram, all these social media, we need to communicate. But then I saw people meeting, sharing nights together in the, in, the, in the same living room, like meeting physically to share this ceremony of watching White Lotus together to share emotions. Isn't it so magic? It is absolutely magical and very well said. Now, it's not until episode three of the show that we start to really get a sense of your character, Valentina's interior life. Um, she's going to get her morning espresso and she can't avoid the unwarranted flirtations of men. I'm wondering what sort of backstory did you give to Valentina and were those conversations that you ever shared with Mike? So... I didn't speak with Mike a lot about the character. I think we spoke 10 minutes maximum before starting the shooting. I felt that I wanted to be wildly free and explore this character with him. And this is exactly what happened. Literally, we explored the character together. And um, about that scene particularly, of course, I created a backstory because Valentina is really very aggressive to men, like almost too much. The scene that was the key for me is the scene when she eats with the, with the kittens. That scene was a key. And I thought if she is eating with the kittens is because she feels that these kittens are the only beings that make her feel safe. She's a work alcoholic. She tries to, to have control in her life through the job. So about men, I also added some abusive experience in the past. And uh, there was a line on the script, on the original script. And uh, there was a scene where Valentina explained um, that she got, she was married before, and uh, and the marriage was very, very unhappy. Backstory, like very violent, abusive, and that helped me to be real in my in my scenes. And then other things that I cannot say because these are secrets of an of an actor. I'm so glad that you brought up the scene where Valentina feeds the kittens because there's a lot of big scenes in The White Lotus season two. And I still think about that one probably the most like that is so emblematic of the season for me and the character of Valentina because we are just getting to know her and we see her as this sort of uh grumpy hotel manager who has a problem with her staff and then we see this really tender moment between her and the kittens and I feel like you learn so much about her can you talk a little bit more about that scene was anything in that scene improvised how did how was that uh how was filming that scene that's a very good question I love this question because that scene to me was a key and I couldn't wait to to shoot it and it, because in those days 
Um, I was shooting all the other scenes where Valentina had to be aggressive and tough and respingent. And I was having also stomach aches sometimes because those scenes were challenging to me. And Mike <laughs> told me, Sabrina, you don't have to have empathy for no one. You have empathy for no one. And I thought, oh my God, really? They're going to hate me. Everybody's going to hate me. Already, already Murray Bartlett is so beloved. He's such an icon. He's a genius actor. And now everybody's going to hate me. So I couldn't wait for that scene to come. And I wanted to make people love me. <laughs> you did. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and I was such a psychopath. I, I, I went to look for the props. I like weeks before. And I asked the props, hey, what do you think I should eat? I think I should eat polpette with uh, with the tomato sauce i was obsessed about the food because also the food for me had to talk about the character and i wanted these meatballs being the same meatballs that the cats were eating and then i chose also the box because i wanted the box to be childish because i thought this character in inside she is like a child and uh, that day i was very upset because it was not sunny and i wanted the sun to be warm and to be part of that scene and then when i saw the scene and then and then I, I, I love the music that they put on the scene because also the, the soundtrack in this show is so brilliant. It's such a masterpiece of choices that really help the pathos of every scene. And I also have to say about Alex, the costume designer, because Every, every suit that I have, that light blue that day was perfect for that day. There is a, also a progression in her way of being dressed. Now, you mentioned the music. Yes, we are all in agreement. The music played such a crucial role in establishing the world of this show. One particular piece of that music is the theme song. I loved the theme song from season one, and so I was so excited to see that season two, you know, rendered it anew and made it into what has now become a viral sensation both on TikTok but also in clubs. They are literally playing the theme song to the White Lotus in clubs around the world. And I'm wondering what your reaction to the theme song is, and, and do you recall the first time you heard it? Allora, the first, first time that I heard this theme was that night when I was called for the audition and I was in my bedroom on my own with my computer on the bed and I, I saw the, the titles and I felt like this music is so weird. And, uh, and it, it right away, the first second I heard that, I felt that this melody was entering in my subconscious. Yes. You are fucked. <laughs> you know, when I heard the Italian version, I was at the premiere and everybody was already so excited. 
And then the music started. You know, I will never forget that. I get moved right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very emotional because that was such a beautiful feeling. <laughs> because everybody started to clap. You know, everybody was, wow. My God, after two years of pandemic, that is orgasm. Like people all together, listening to music all together, clapping, dancing. After two years of pandemic, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I just have to point out the fact that you said that you were going to be low energy in this interview, and it is a testament to this theme song that the mere mention of it brought that energy in you. What exactly what we're talking about, <laughs> it's happening to you right now. Okay, speaking from one subject you like to another, I know from listening to your past interviews that you, like so many of us, love Jennifer Coolidge. We too love Jennifer Coolidge. We've been lucky enough to have her on this podcast. I spoke to her ahead of my interview with you today, and she said, Sabrina is a firecracker. That is the word that she used to describe you. Can you talk about what it was like working with Jennifer? I know you were a fan of hers leading up to it. And additionally, you know, you spoke about that Peppa Pig line and how it was improvised. I just think how incredible that you had the bravery to improvise with one of these comedic icons of our time that you felt comfortable enough to like get in the mud with her. Can you talk about that? I was not feeling comfortable. It's exactly the opposite. I was reacting to feeling too uncomfortable. That's why, because I was feeling so, so intimidated. So I will start from the beginning. Allora. Mm, allora, Jennifer is a goddess. Like to me, Jennifer, she's not, she's not a human being. To me, Jennifer is beyond. To, to me, Jennifer, she's not an actress. She's an artist. When I met her the first time on set, I was so, so intimidated. I was not able to see my lines for three takes. So the assistant director came and said, Sabrina, you're supposed to talk in this scene. <laughs> I said, oh my God, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. And so that was the beginning. And I went back to my hotel room. I was feeling very frustrated. And Jennifer was from day one. She was so sweet with me. And uh, guys, you have to understand that I had many traumatic experiences with some actresses that were not nice to me. So to me, her war heart was, was, was just beyond. I thought not only she's an incredible artist, but she's an incredible human being. And Mike told me, Sabrina, you don't have to feel any empathy for Tanya. Valentina doesn't have empathy for Tanya. The, the more you're bitchy, the more it's funny. And to me, I was so, so upset because I thought, I, oh my gosh, this is very difficult to me because I love Jennifer. And so that scene, the scene started and I saw Jennifer and she was improvising and I was so overwhelmed once more by her 
improvising in such an incredible way because guys you don't you don't you don't you didn't see what she did in that scene because it's not in the show that she was improvising and she was making me laugh and melt with love so because she was improvising i thought well maybe me too i can improvise i mean i have to improvise i have to be bitchy i have to be bitchy so 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 she said oh, how, how, do, how do i look like so first thing I said, oh, you look so pink. That was already an improvisation because I didn't know that she was dressed in pink. And then, and then I don't know, from pink, it came out, uh, Peppa Pig. And what happened is that I was frozen. Like I thought, this is the end. Like this is the end of my career. And I looked at Jennifer and Jennifer was like, <laughs> Like she could not stop laughing like at school. So she, she was laughing, like laughing, 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 laughing. But so we had to stop the take. And one of the producers, Mark Amai, he came to me, he said, who is this Peppa Pig? And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, they don't know Peppa Pig. Oh. <laughs> and so I went, I left the set, I went to look for my phone. I was desperate. You have to understand that I thought they're going to fire me. And so I looked for the pictures of Peppa Pig and, and I went to Jennifer. I said, Jennifer, look, it's not a pig. It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon. <laughs> you know, another great actress from this season was Megan Fahey. And a lot of people talked about her incredible face acting in the series finale. But another point of interest has been around your face acting and specifically the lip quiver that we see when Isabella tells you that she's in a relationship with Rocco. Was that something you were doing consciously or does that just happen? No, that that was totally unconscious. Wow. Well, first of all, because, because you said Megan, I want to say that Megan is another incredible human being and I uh, and I love her and I want to say that because because it's very special and unique and she's a great actress too and so back to to this scene um I didn't expect that to happen but in those days I must say that Valentina was living by herself I was not acting that's so weird it's like Valentina, Valentina started to, after so many days of not sleeping at night, being so scared, crying so much about feeling, oh my gosh, I, I'm, not, I'm not able to do this. I'm not able, Valentina is such a complex character. I suffered so much, but I kept thinking about her, writing about her, studying her, reading the script again and again. And, and, and then Valentina, she took me so that scene i felt it i felt it like when, when isabella came to me and she said rock with my boyfriend oh my god this is too much <laughs> mm. 
I think that it's particularly notable how Valentina gets a happy ending. There's several times throughout the show where I worried about her fate, like when the host hotel staffer walked in on her and Mia sleeping in the hotel room, or when Giuseppe returned to the hotel in a fit of rage, or when Mia delicately turned down your character. And yet in the end, Valentina triumphs. And I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about how you were worried that Valentina might suffer the same fate as Armand in season one. But not only was that not the case, but Valentina really came out on top in the end. And I'm wondering how that felt for you, not as an actress, but as a human being. Wow. Guys, I love your questions. You are so smart. <laughs> Thank you. You know when I understood that Valentina was winning? When? Like in the last days. Mm. I understood that while I was shooting. This is so unbelievable about this journey. I made this journey with Mike White. And while I was shooting that scene, when Mia comes to me after having sex, and I, I, told, I tell her, oh, you're so beautiful. And, uh, and I was feeling like, oh my God, Valentina now, she's such a child. Valentina probably now she's in love with Mia. And so she's going to struggle. And so I was going that direction. But Mike, Mike called me and told me, Sabrina, Valentina, yes. She feels for, for, for Mia, if you want, it's okay. But I want you to have joy now. I want Valentina to be happy because now Valentina can finally feel free to explore her new life. In that moment, I, was, I felt like, yes, Valentina can be happy, yes, she's free. Of course, now it's not that I'm imagining Valentina's life to be so easy. We're not talking about miracles. And I, I like the idea that Valentina will keep struggling in her life because this is beautiful. It's beautiful, the idea of, because everybody of us struggles, struggles. We keep struggling always with the same themes in our life. Did you notice that, guys? Mm -hmm. So... To me, this is the beginning of the awakening of Valentina. And you know, it's so interesting as a queer person watching the show, because in that final scene between Valentina and Mia, I was expecting Mia to come to her and have this huge letdown. And you mentioned that joy that you and Mike spoke about and wanting to give Valentina that joy. I think it's interesting as a queer person how much that was such a shift in me because I'm just so accustomed to seeing the queer character get everything taken away from them. So I think one of the unexpected delights of this show was not only seeing Valentina like, you know, come out on top, but the idea that this queer character was going to have not only what she wanted, maybe what she didn't even know she wanted. Yes, bravo, bravo. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. Isn't it? So beautiful. Mm, indeed. So there's another question that a lot of fans have been speculating about since the show ended, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. A lot of people are wondering when Ethan and Daphne went to that island Isabella, what really happened there? Now, Will Sharp, who played Ethan, said it was, quote, a moment of intimacy. 
while Megan Fahey, who played Daphne, said there was, quote, definitely something sexual for sure. Sabrina, I want to know, what do you think happened between those characters on the island? First of all, I want I want to underline the unbelievable beauty of that scene. That scene is, to me, a masterpiece of directing a scene. The, the scene starts, of course, them speaking and that incredible monologue that Megan, my gosh, she deserves awards. And then when they both walk silently, they don't talk. They just walk to the island. With Fabrizio De André, guys, you have to understand that for in Italian, that song is the highest quality of poetry and music. You know that I keep wondering about what happened on that island. And to be honest, I don't want to give myself an answer because it's so much funnier to have this question open. It's not important to me if they did or they didn't because they keep going back to their lives with the same, like Will not, the characters of Will, Will is another guy. Will, he's so incredible as an actor. I am in love with his work. So layered, so sophisticated. And I will never forget him with that wet pink t-shirt. Can you guys, oh. can you? No. <laughs> no. Oh no. my God, it's so sexy. Well, speaking of speaking of bodies, because there is a lot of male nudity in this show, which we're not complaining about. Uh, these actors are, are very good looking. Very good looking. But, but also you had a nude scene towards the end of season two. And I feel like it came at such an interesting point for Valentina because she was starting to realize things about herself. She was starting to get freed, as you said. And then she has this moment with Mia. And then you and then you have a nude scene. I'm curious what you thought about going into that. Were you nervous about shooting that scene at all? Or what did it mean to you? In my private life, I'm, I'm super shy. And then as an actress, I've never had done a, a scene in my life where I was without dress. So to me, the idea of getting undressed, it was a nightmare. But, but I'm going to tell you something even more surprising. It's me that proposed that to Mike. Hmm. I proposed it to Mike in, a, in an impulse. I said, Mike, I think that Valentina should wake up and should not have the panties. She doesn't have the panties and she's looking for her panties. And I think that could be a moment of comedy. What do you think about it? And he was laughing so much. He was laughing. He was enjoying this so much. I, I went out of the room of Mike and I said, oh my God, did he say yes? I'm so stupid. But it worked, and at the end, <laughs> at the end, uh, I'm happy it's there now. 
But you know what, Sabrina? I feel like the fact that, you know, you were speaking about your scene with Coolidge earlier and the improv in that scene. And then in this moment, you go to Mike with this idea and you have him laughing hysterically. I feel like how incredible that you as an artist were able to come into a show like this and offer up your own ideas. It sort of shows the fact that like you are operating at that same higher plane of like artistic kinetic energy that people like Mike White and Coolidge are. And these are people you hold in such high regard and you were playing in the same field as them. I feel like that really speaks to your talents. Thank you so much. This is very beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, it, it's me that happens when I'm inspired. And um, that happens when you find your, your game, your favorite game players. Well, hopefully you all will come together again on some future project. Now, we had Esti Haim on the podcast a few weeks ago. Oh, Esti! Yes, and she was telling us that this was a cast that liked to hang out together after the shoots. There was a lot of drinking going on, a lot of good times happening at the hotel. What can you tell us about life at the White Lotus when the cameras were down? I, I really miss my life with them. I miss my life with them because my life with them was funny, was exciting, was, was always surprising because all these guys are all artists and also lovable. There was chemistry between us, between all of us. I remember the first time we met all together, like the day that you arrived in Taormina, it was cold it was february taormina was so so depressing but seriously depressing it was empty we went to have dinner all together the first night and right away i felt oh these people i like them <laughs> i like them all wow what's going to happen this is this is the most beautiful starting that we could have. It was an artistic and human journey. So the White Lotus has established a tradition of carrying characters over from season to season. Of course, we had Tanya and Greg from season one come into season two. Many of us are wondering who is going to carry over. Hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, many. We want more Valentina. Sean, you don't put that little maledetto seed in my head, okay? You don't put that seed in my head. Shut up! Shut up, even. Shut up, Sean. Okay, no, but I'm not. I no. I, 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 okay. I'm not gonna shut up because. <laughs> This is something we want. We have to put it out into the world so that maybe it'll happen. Whether it happens or not, I'm just curious because you got really invested into this character of Valentina. You created a world around Valentina. Whether it's in the White Lotus season three or not, where do you see Valentina's future going? She, she thought she was not even able to deserve attention. In fact, the first person that gives her attention she 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 falls in love with the first person that gives her attention as a, as a woman can you imagine 
how happy Valentina can be now, like now, in this moment. Valentina that lives in me is so incredibly happy to receive love from all over the world. Uh, I don't want to imagine anything else that, that, than that. Um, I, I just can say this thing that I want to put in the universe the, 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 the desire of working again in my life before I die with Mike White. I love that. And, and might I add, I would love to see that collaboration also involve Jennifer Coolidge as well. I would like to see the three of you. Oh my God, that would be such a dream. Uh, listen, we believe in the power of manifestation. Now, Sabrina, before <laughs> we let you go, you know, you have been working for a long time. I'm a big fan of your Tomb Raider clips from back in the day. Oh no, really? Oh my God. <laughs> They're so good. They're so good. You know, I did it. I did it before Angelina Solini. I did it. Let before the record her. be known. Now you've been working for a long time, but like this level of success, I mean, an actor can only. I mean, I don't even know if actors can dream of this level of success. You are the name on everybody's lips right now, and I'm just wondering what that feels like for you, having been doing this for a long time, to experience this level of success. Again, a project that everyone loves and you being recognized within that project as one of the best parts of it. Outside of the White Lotus, just you, Sabrina, how does it feel to be in this moment and have all of this? Allora, the first thing I can say is that my mom is so happy that this, to me, is the most important thing. Then, secondly, I can say that uh, this is bringing me, I think, the highest joy in my professional life. Because me, I am an actress. Because I have to fulfill this hole that I have inside me. I have a big hole. It's a, a hole of love. I just need love. And so I am an actress because I want to uh, love and I want to be loved. <laughs> it's the only thing. And so to me, it's it's so weird. I'm not thinking about success. I'm thinking about love. It's about love, guys. And that's why I'm so proud of becoming a queer icon. Because to me, it's unbelievable that uh, the queer community must struggle for having the same rights of uh, heterosexual. This is such a big bullshit that doesn't make no sense that if with this character, somehow, somewhere over the rainbow, I could be less um, useful than I am, and somehow supporting the queer uh, struggle, the queer community, I feel that we won, that's the best thing. And I'm not even queer. I mean, I don't say nothing, I never say no, because you can never know, you can never know, and I'm open to everything. <laughs> We all need to have the right to love who we want to love, of course, being um, consensual. <laughs> yes, yes. Very, very well said. I co-sign all of that. Uh, Sabrina, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, on behalf of White Lotus fans everywhere, I mean, like you, I think we're all feeling a little bit of a hole in our heart to not have this show anymore, but... 
What's exciting about it is how many people have been introduced to all of the actors and creatives that are responsible for this show, all of whom have work in the past and work in the future that we can follow. And just your energy and enthusiasm for Mike and Jennifer and this project, it's so palpable. And so I thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, I'm so excited to continue to follow your career. I think you've had big things in your past and there are big things yet to come as well. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Ivan. That was such a joy. You guys are brilliant. Really. Thank you so much. This has been such a thrill. Yeah, such a pleasure. And I hope to meet you in person one day. Indeed. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Ciao. Ciao. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Evan, stai Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.